So I am going to ask you to turn with me to Matthew 9, 35. We've been living in this passage now for several weeks, really since the beginning of the year. And uh, I've taken the time to flesh out this passage in ways that are probably even a little different than normal. When you, when you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed, where he asked, Lord of the harvest, raise up workers to go into the harvest field, our hearts immediately jump to the idea that God is sending people out. But I've wanted us to see the foundation behind that, that this is a bigger story than that. It began, uh, well, let's just read it one more time, and then let me walk through the major pieces uh, before we dig into this morning's uh, message. Um, So beginning in, in 935, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. So we began not looking at the command to go, but with the fact that Jesus started with the glory of God. Jesus acknowledged in the very beginning that God is the Lord of the harvest. That means that this is his work, not ours, first and foremost. It means that he is the need of the world. It's not our churches, it's not our buildings, it's not our work. It's Jesus Christ that people need, and we want to begin by glorifying God as the one who is sufficient for every need. And that's where Jesus started. It built on his view of the world. When Jesus looked out into a broken and sinful world, what he saw were not people to be condemned because they were associated with a wicked world. What he saw were people who were broken, who need to be redeemed. Jesus saw their brokenness more than he saw their wickedness or their evil. And his heart caused him to respond to that out of love. And so the third point there in this overview is that Jesus was was fueled by love in what he did. Uh, Then finally, Jesus did give the command to go. And that's where we want to go this morning as we think about uh, the final point here that uh, everything Jesus says culminates in the command to go. I want, you, I want to look at four things here that I believe are at the heart of this part of the message. The first one is this, is that Jesus' command to go is for every believer. It's not just for a small few. It's not just for a professionally trained group of believers. Jesus' command to go is for every believer. When he prayed, Lord, uh, raise up workers for the harvest field, he wasn't talking about preachers and, and evangelists and people who had special gifts. Jesus wasn't saying here, Lord, there are a few out there that have been gifted and called, raise them up. What he was saying is, Lord, these that are around me are going. I'm asking that you would awaken everyone else's eyes to the magnitude of the need. Help everyone to see the need and that we need all hands on deck for this need. And so it begins with a call to all believers. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says to us, 
Um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you even to the end of the age. These were the last words that Jesus spoke to his followers before he went back to heaven to reign with his Father in, the, in, in his kingdom. These were the last words that Jesus spoke. He said to his disciples, go and make disciples. Now, now some would argue, yeah, but Jesus was talking to his disciples. He was talking to those that were, were in roles of leadership. But I want to say that when you look at the rest of the counsel of God's word, we see all throughout the New Testament that while only a few may be called to roles of leadership, all believers are called to be witnesses, every one of us. Uh, take Acts 1.8, for example. Jesus said to his disciples um, just before he ascended back into heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I would remind you that what Jesus is saying here. Um, is that he's talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that was prophesied in the book of Joel in the Old Testament, where it says that in that day when I pour out my Spirit, my Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, on men and women, on young and old. All people will, be, will, will have an experience of the presence of God in them. So when Jesus speaks these words... He's speaking them about everyone who is a follower of Jesus. All of us are called to be empowered witnesses in the world in which we live. Uh, we think about First um, Peter two nine. This was a, in a letter that was written to a local church, just like this one, where Paul uh, Peter says to this local church, "But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy." nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. These were words that were written to a local church. In fact, these are words that, that sparked, at least partially responsible for sparking the Protestant movement. And, and at the heart of that movement, of which we are all a part, is a belief in the kingdom, um, in the priesthood of all believers, that all believers are called to be priests. A priest, in its simplest sense, is simply this, one who stands between holy God and sinful man. A priest is a mediator, one who introduces people to God and God to people. That's the role of a priest. And he's saying here to a local church, just like ours, you are a kingdom of priests. All of you are called into this ministry of priesthood where your role is to declare the praises of him who has called you and led you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And may I just say, beloved, that's, just, that's the simplicity of it. Really, all he's asking us to do is to give testimony to the fact that he has brought us out of the darkness and into the light. That's the heart of our call, but it's for all believers. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, Paul picks up on this same idea. And he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. These words were spoken or written to a local church in the city of Corinth in the nation of Greece. He says, we are ambassadors. We're called to be ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us. And I love that Paul saw it that way. Because I don't know about you, but I can tell you that when I have heard messages on my responsibility to reach the world, one of my immediate reactions is usually guilt. I'm not doing it enough. I'm failing. I'm falling short. And this is just a reminder that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I think that's the enemy wanting to give us a perspective that will be demotivating rather than the accurate perspective, which is this, that the God of the universe believes in you, that the God of the universe has invited you into his work. He has invited you to come alongside him in this incredible ministry of reconciling people who are lost and broken back to the Lord. It is an honor. It is a privilege. And he longs to draw us into this great work that is at the heart of who he is. I do want to emphasize here that this is not a call that requires you to go to some special place or even to do some special thing. When you look at the Great Commission, it's often read in, in the sense that Jesus was saying, make disciples of all men by going into all the world. Uh, I want to remind you that the literal translation of that is not that you have to go somewhere else. It literally reads, in your going. In your going, wherever you go. Just wherever you go, be ready to give testimony to the Lord's, to the life that you have found in Him. Um, and, and it's not that we have to do anything particular other than to be salt and light. Jesus said to us, I mean to you and to me, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Do you know what salt and light do? They, they, just, they just do what they were created to be, Right? I mean, uh, they don't have to do anything special. They just exist in a place or a thing, and salt makes everything it touches salty, and light turns everything that is touched by dark into light. They just simply do what they were created to do. Nothing super, nothing difficult, nothing abnormal. They simply do what they were made to do. God wants you simply to be a follower of Jesus everywhere you go and in all that you do. There's a great book by uh, Michael Green. He's a theologian who spent years researching the way the early church grew, how the early church multiplied and expanded so rapidly. And here's what he discovered. He says, the ordinary people of the church saw sharing the gospel as their job. Christianity was supremely a lay movement. That means it was not done by professionals. It wasn't done by people with titles. It was done by ordinary, informal missionaries. He goes on to say, this must not have often been uh, formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes, in wine shops, on walks, around the market stalls. I love this last part. 
He says, they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with conviction of those who were not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread. Do you hear what he's saying? Is that when ordinary, everyday people share what Jesus has done in their lives, people take it more seriously when they hear it from folks like you than when they hear it from folks like me. When they hear it from somebody like me, they say, yeah, well, of course you, you, would, you would say that. And you're paid to be a preacher. You've been trained to be a preacher. But when you say it, people believe that it must be real because you're not getting paid. You're, you're, not, you're not building anything. You're just an everyday, ordinary person. Your impact is incredible if you'll simply walk into it and embrace it. This call is to all who would follow him. David Platt says it this way in his book, uh, Radical. The mission of God requires that believers leverage their lives for his glory. The Great Commission is not for a select few. It is for the entirety of the church. The movement of God's mission sweeps across everyday, ordinary lives to draw in business people, soccer moms, grandmothers, neighbors, students, lawyers, teachers, contractors, white collar, blue collar, no collar at all. Is there anybody that doesn't fit somewhere in that description? Anybody that's not a part of that description somewhere, he goes on to say, people, regular people like you and me, united by the one who lifts the curse of the fall, filled with his spirit, laying down our lives, denying ourselves for the mission of God and for the good of others. This is a call to all believers. I want you to hear me when I say to you this morning, you are the light of the world. Isn't that an incredible thing that God has said? Amen. That Jesus has said that you are the light of the world? Now, Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. And let me, let's be clear that our light, the, the way we are a light is a little different than the way Jesus is light. He is the light. We are light. He's like the sun and we're like the moon. I think that's probably the best way to think about it. He is the source of light, and we are meant to reflect his light in everything we say and do and in all that we live. I think that's what he meant when he said, you are the light of the world. Second thing that we see here is a sense of urgency, that Jesus' call was characterized by a deep sense of urgency. Now, we see it in a number of ways. Jesus says uh, the, the harvest um, the fields are ripe for harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest. I mean, I don't know if anybody else here other than me grew up in farm country, uh, but I grew up right in the middle of farm country, worked on a farm, and I'll tell you, if you don't know anything else about farming, there's one thing that's absolutely clear. When the harvest is ready, you got to go get it, and you got to get it quickly. Because when the harvest is ripe, if you don't get it quickly, you will lose it. I can remember the days in the fall when uh, the corn would be ready or the, the peanuts would be ready to pick or the cotton was ready to pick. And I can remember that in those days when the harvest was ready, everything centered around bringing in the harvest because you will lose it if you don't get it quickly. Jesus was saying that the harvest is ripe. There are those around us who are already ready. 
By the way, do you know what he's also saying? Is that it's not your job or mine to make people ready. It's not your job or mine to get people ready for the gospel. He's not asking us to go out there and make people ready. He says they're already out there. There are people that have already been moving in their hearts. They've already been working on them. I'm just asking you to go out and find the ones that are ready. Find the ones that are ripe and be ready to bring them in. He was driven by that sense of urgency. We see it also in his prayer. When Jesus prayed, the Lord of the harvest, send workers into the harvest field. Can I just tell you that that little word send comes from the Greek word ekbalo? And it means to cast out or to thrust out with force. Jesus was praying to the Lord of the harvest, Lord, throw people into the harvest field. Cast them into the harvest field. Move on them to go and to go now. And then, if that wasn't enough, as soon as he said the prayer, Jesus turned around and looked at anybody that was within the sound of his voice. And he said, now go. I'm not praying this prayer that the Lord will send somebody else to go. I'm praying that that the Lord would send you to go. Now go. And he immediately sent them out. He didn't say go home and do a Bible study on it. He didn't say go home and, and pray about it for a month. He said the need is here and the need is now. Go into the harvest field. When we think about that, you know, we wonder, well, why was he so... Why, where did this sense of urgency come from? I mean, when you look at the passage itself, it's very, very clear that what moved Jesus is exactly what Kelly talked about earlier. He looked out, he saw people who were lost, helpless, and harassed. And the scripture says he was moved with compassion. I want to tell you, that's what the NIV says. It isn't nearly strong enough. The word literally means Jesus had a gut-wrenching experience. His insides were turned out because of what he saw. I think Peterson really does capture more of the heart of what Jesus was saying when it says his heart was broken. His heart was broken. Jesus' love for those who were lost is what fueled his sense of urgency. He saw people that needed to be saved, not just so that they would go to heaven when they died. He saw people that needed to to know that the God of the universe loves them right now and can come to them and help the lost be found and to let the broken be healed and the harassed to find peace. Jesus said, go and bring them what the, the, the Father longs to bring them now. That was his sense of urgency. He was driven by his love. I mean, I really believe that's what Paul had in mind when he said in 2 Corinthians 5, his love compels us. His love compels us. Uh, Jesus, he, he spells it out. Jesus Christ's love compels us. If you want to know what created urgency in Paul's heart, it was the fact that Jesus loves people so radically. Go back to all those songs we just got through singing a few minutes ago. Oh, how he loves me. I mean, I love the one that was before us. It talked about how he'll climb a mountain, he'll tear down a wall, coming after me. Can I just let you know he has the same passion for everybody out there that's lost. There's a sense of urgency that is driven by his love, that is driven by his love. Jesus also acknowledges, and and I hope this will be helpful for you, He acknowledges the reality of obstacles. He's not pulling any punches with his disciples. He's not, uh, you know, uh, he's not, uh, he understands the difficulty. He says to them, 
As soon as he says go, he says, I am sending you like sheep among wolves. He says, what I'm asking you to do is going to be hard. What I'm asking you to do is going to cause people to hate you sometimes. It's going to cause people not to like you. It's going to cause people to hold you at arm's length. I'll tell you, there are people in this world today who literally, it's like sheep among wolves. We know people working in Syria, working in, um, in Venezuela, working in, in parts of the world where if, you, if, it is, if it becomes known that you're a follower of Jesus, you may well be put in prison or, or even worse. There are people that we know that have connections to those that have died for the sake of the gospel. And I'll just say, it, we don't deal with that here in the U.S., but let's, our, our obstacles are our obstacles Honestly, there's no value in comparing our obstacles to somebody else's and saying, well, theirs are way worse than ours. I mean, the truth is, Jesus said they're obstacles. There will be people that will be against you if they know you're truly a follower of Jesus. There will be people who reject you. You will pray and you will share and there will be people who will tell you, I have no desire for what you want to give me. I have no desire to know the the Jesus that you're talking about. There will be people that reject you. And Jesus says, you need to know that. You need to know that there are obstacles. I can think of others as well. I mean, for some of us, maybe it's our pride or our dignity. I mean, we don't mind if people know that we go to church. I mean, that's pretty acceptable, at least in the Bible Belt anyway. But, you know, we do know that even here, there are people that if you get really, really serious about the Lord and you start sharing your faith, they're going to call you a fanatic. And some of us don't like the idea of being called a fanatic. Uh, I, I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was David Platt or someone else, but they said, do you know what a fanatic really is? It's someone who loves Jesus more than you. I mean, that's just what a fanatic is. But you know what? We don't like labels like that. We don't like to be called things like that. And so there is a sense in which our pride can be an obstacle. Our dignity can be an obstacle. There are also cultural boundaries nationally, regionally, even in the family you grew up in, there are certain cultural values that may be obstacles to you embracing this call to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll just tell you very straightforwardly, I grew up in a culture where it was, it was 100% acceptable to go to church, but you didn't talk openly about it. I mean, religion was kind of considered to be more of a private thing. And people who talked about it openly and publicly were kind of looked at as strange and weird. Uh, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a culture, in a background where we were taught to kind of keep things that were very personal to ourselves. And I'll just tell you that even today sometimes that can be an obstacle for me. It just almost seems inappropriate to strike up a conversation with somebody talking about something so personal. It's, a, it's an obstacle I'm still trying to overcome some of you have obstacles like that uh, in your family or in the, the region of our country that you grew up in. Some of us would say this morning that I'm afraid of running them off. You know, I've been working on this relationship. I've been nurturing this, this, uh, uh, this friendship. And I, I, I don't, I'm afraid if I talk to them about Jesus too boldly, it's going to run them off. You know, I, I remember a, um, an evangelist telling a story, a true story of at the end of his service, a woman came down front, and uh, he was going through praying over everyone. And when he got to her, she said, Preacher, I need you to pray for my uncle. So my uncle is an alcoholic. Um, he divorced his wife. His kids don't have anything to do with him. Now he's lost his job. 
would you please pray for my uncle? He needs Jesus so badly. And he looked at her, he said, ma'am, I'll be glad to pray for your uncle, but let me just ask you, have you talked to him about Jesus? Have you shared your faith with your uncle? She said, oh, Lord, no, of course not. I'm afraid I'd run him off. And he looked at her and he said, ma'am, he's off. How much further can he run? I mean, he is off as far as he can get. I mean, the, but here's the thing. That's an extreme example. But the truth is that everyone you know who is not a follower of Jesus Christ is off. Everyone you know who is not uh, in a relationship with Jesus Christ is facing eternity in hell apart from loving God and everything that belongs to him. Everyone you know is off if they don't belong to Jesus And we worry about offending people, but you would never, ever worry about offending someone who was standing in the path of a Mack truck that was about to hit them. You would never step back and say, they're about to get hit, but if I go up there and say something to them or push them, they're going to get offended. Of course you wouldn't do that, right? You would go to them and you would say, you are in danger. Please come out of the path of this danger. There's also deception, the obstacle of deception. I mean, we live in a world where the isms of our world have, have, are, are, is currently deceiving so many people in our nation. Talking about things like uh, humanism and secularism and relativism and pluralism. These are all isms that are taught in our schools and in our colleges that we see constantly on TV. These are the isms that teach us things like this, that that all people are essentially good. All people are basically good. Yeah, there's some exceptions, and the really, 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 really bad people are probably going to get it in the afterlife, but most people are good. Most people are fine. That's humanism. Secularism is that this world is all there is. There is no afterlife. There is no world after here. So why not eat, drink, and be merry? Why not live any way you want here? Because eternity doesn't matter. This world is all there is. There's the relativism that teaches there is no such thing as absolute truth. There, there's no thing that's absolutely certain. So there's nothing on which we could base our faith. And then lastly, pluralism is built on that lie, that there is no absolute truth. And and if that's true, if we begin to buy into this belief that all truth is relative, then certainly none of us has reason or, or is justified in claiming that one faith is better than another, or that one lifestyle is better than another, or that one anything is better than another. It's all the same, and none is better than any other. I want to tell you that there are so many people... Today, within the sound of my voice, this, within reach of this building, who have, been, who have come under that deception. And we have to be able to work through those obstacles in order to bring the gospel. Jesus said it's not going to be easy. There will be things that will stand in the way. There is an enemy that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you're going to follow me, you're going into a battle. You're going into a world at war. And that you will face those obstacles. But thank God Jesus does not leave the story there. Because the last thing that he says is this. I promise you, you will have everything you need. He has promised us his provision. In the Matthew 9 passage, he doesn't just send them out as sheep among wolves. He sends them out with 
authority, with authority. He gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal diseases. With that authority was power, the power to actually do what he had called them to do. So he gave them authority. He gave them power. Authority is the right to represent Jesus. Power is the ability to represent him in a way that will have effect. Jesus says, I will give you these things, and you will have them in the moment that you need them. Acts 1.8, we read it earlier, but Jesus said, you will receive power, the Holy Spirit coming on you, to be my witnesses. Do you understand that the primary reason that God has empowered you is to be his witness? To be a witness for him in the world? He has promised you authority. He has promised you power. Most of all, he has promised us his presence. Jesus says in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, what's the last thing he says? After giving them the Great Commission, the very last thing he says is, and lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. But here's the thing about God's promises. This is true for every promise I know that God offers. If we're going to receive the promise, if we're going to receive what God has promised, we have to step by faith into the place where we actually have the need. He's saying, I'm going to give you what you need, but I can't give it to you until you need it. So if we're just sitting back waiting and saying, I'm, I'm waiting to, for, for courage, I'm waiting for boldness, I'm waiting for the right words, I'm, I'm waiting for something to come to me that I don't currently have in order to do what he's called me to do, I want to tell you what I've learned in my life, not just here, but in almost every part of the Christian life. God brings his promises, he brings his provision in the moment in which it is needed. That's why he constantly calls us to live by faith. Because if we don't live by faith, we'll not get the promises of faith. If we don't put ourselves in a position where we need what God has promised, then we will never receive what he's promised. So the question this morning is this. Will we receive his provision? Will we step out in faith to, to put ourselves in a place where we need his provision? Let me close with this. And let, let me just say, by the way, just to give you an idea of where we're going, over the next several weeks, we want to talk about this in very, very practical terms, we, especially with, with obstacles and provision. We want to talk about the specific obstacles that are related to your circles of influence. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about uh, one of your circles of influence is your family or your closest friends. These are the people that you know best and who know you best. Uh, there's, a, there's a wider circle that consists of those that you work with or those that you interact with on a weekly basis. These are people that you know well. You wouldn't call them family. You wouldn't maybe not even call them a close friend, but they are people that you are constantly around. And then there's the widest circle of those that are people that we bump into all the time, people that we don't know. But I want to suggest, and we'll come to this in a few weeks, that, that many of the times, many of those times when we bump into people that we don't know, if we, were, if we had eyes to see, if we had ears to hear, we would see that God has given us a divine appointment. We would see that there's an opportunity to be a witness in some small way in the moment, even with people that we don't know. We're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. But this morning... I simply want to challenge you and invite you
um, to hear the urgency, the compassion, the love that Jesus has for those who are lost, and to be willing to open your heart to allow him to speak to you today that he might speak these words into your own heart. Uh, Let me close with this story, and it comes right out of God's word. Uh, It's in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 7. In 2 Kings 7, the people of Israel are confined inside the walls of Jerusalem, and they have been under siege from a foreign army for years. Uh, They've used up all their supplies, all their food is gone, their water is scarce. Uh, The whole city is beginning to starve to death. In fact, it got so bad at one point, this is right out of God's word in 2 Kings chapter 7. It gets so bad at one point that two women come together and they make an agreement. Today we will eat my son, tomorrow we will eat yours. When the king hears about this, he, he, he pulls, begins to pull out of his hair and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he gets on his face and he says, Lord, what could have brought us to such a place of desperation? Now, while all this is going on, there is a group of four lepers who are sitting out along the edge of the walls. Now, in those days, you have to understand that the lepers were the least of these. The lepers were those who were shunned by the rest of society. So if society as a whole was in that place of desperation, imagine how desperate it must have been for the four lepers. And at one point, they finally decided, you know, we're, there's just no hope. We might as well go across the valley and into the camp of the enemy. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that they, they would kill us, but at least they'd be putting us out of our misery. And if they happen to receive us, well, they've got food. Maybe they'll share some of it with us. And so it wasn't some great act of faith. They just said, basically, we have no other hope. Let's just go over, and if we die, we die. But at least there's a possibility of food. And so the four lepers begin to make their way across the, uh, the valley. And when they get to the other side, they discover what no one else in Israel yet knows, that in the night... God has worked a miracle. God has called angels to go through the enemy camp, scared the living daylights out of the enemy. They immediately left and abandoned everything they had in the enemy camp. There's not one soul in the camp, but everything they had is still there. I mean, there's food everywhere they look. Man, these four lepers go and they just dive in head first. I mean, they are swimming in mashed potatoes. They are covered in gravy. Uh, they're, they're stuffing down the fried chicken and green beans. Uh, you, this is an army that comes from my neck of the woods, by the way, um, or Lisa Cook's anyway. But, uh, I mean, they're, they're just stuffing the food in. They cannot believe the good fortune that they've got, and they're stuffing themselves on the provision of God's people. And then suddenly, one of the, other, one of the four looks at the other three, and he says, Brothers, this is not right. This is not right. This is wrong. There's an entire city that is on the verge of starvation. And we have this miracle of sustenance, of life. We can't sit here and eat it all ourselves when there's a whole city behind us that's dying. And so the four men finally get up and they go back to the city and they tell people the good news that God has done a miracle, that there is life on the other side, and that all they have to do is come and eat. And I want to tell you, I don't know if there's a better description of the gospel anywhere in the Bible 
comes right out of the Old Testament, but I want to tell you that every one of us, whether we really understood it or not, every one of us was at the point that those lepers were at some point. Every one of us was in a hopeless situation. Some of us in a very similar situation to the lepers. The truth of the matter is you had tried everything, nothing had worked, and you thought, well, I might as well try Jesus. I might as well try Jesus. If it doesn't work, well, it doesn't work, you know. Uh, but if it works, maybe I found something. And you went over, you gave your life to Christ, and you discovered that Jesus Christ really is the author of life. He really does bring abundance of life. We have all experienced the abundant provision of a God who loves to bring life. But I want to say that if we come here week after week just lapping it up, just soaking in the glory of worship, hearing the word of God, being inspired, leaving here with a wonderful sense of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, to belong to the people of God, when there is an entire city out there that is desperately in need. It's not right. Amen? Amen. It's not right for us to gorge on God's goodness when there is an entire city that is desperate for food. I want to invite uh, the worship team back out here and, and the prayer team, if you would, come and make yourself available up front. And here's the invitation. The invitation, first and foremost, is this. If there is anyone here this morning that has never accepted Jesus Christ's offer of salvation, if you've never prayed the prayer of faith, if you've never taken that step to receive the grace that he's offered, today is the day of salvation. Can I just tell you that the greatest lie of the enemy is that there's always a tomorrow? He can always do this when you get home. You can always do this when you get a little older. You can always do this some other time when it's more convenient. I want to say that every day we see the tragic reality that none of us are promised the next breath. Today is a day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This is right out of God's word. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. I want to invite you just to come and go to any of these up front. They would love to lead you through a prayer of salvation this morning. And we would love to walk with you and to help you get what you need as a new follower of Jesus. But let me also say to those of us who already know him, I believe Jesus would want us today to open our hearts to receive his heart and his eyes to see what he sees, to know what breaks his heart, to allow him to give us his heart. Maybe you just need to come and confess that your heart's not really been open, that you've not really been willing to listen and hear, but that today you've determined, Lord, I want to hear your voice. I want to let whatever breaks your heart break mine. And then there probably are some people that while I've been speaking this morning, the Lord has already begun to put specific names or faces in your mind's eye. You can see them. You know that they don't yet know Him. You've heard this call. You want to be used by the Lord, but you want to be used well, and you want to be used in a way that is effective. 
I just want to invite you to come and get on your knees and begin to pray and say, Lord, show me. Show me how to walk in this. Show me how to connect with this person in a way that would reveal to them your love and the light of your glory. These altars are open. If you just need to come and pray for someone this morning who doesn't know him, then please take that time. But let's all stand so that those who need to move can. All those who are remained where you are, if you want to just join in singing, we're going to go back and sing one of the songs we sang earlier. Let's worship him and let's begin to respond as the Lord leads you this morning.